This is Ivarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. The Candid Frame offers over 250 in-depth interviews with photographers from every genre of photography. From fashion photographers to photojournalists, these conversations provide insight into what it means to be a photographer today. You can access every episode from the convenience of your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Windows 8, Android, and Apple iOS, you can stream or download any episode directly through your device. And the best part of it is that it's all free. Click the links on the Candid Frame website to download it today. The field of journalism in the U.S. is rapidly changing. But today we discuss the realities of journalism across the Atlantic with our guest Hugo Passarello Luna. Born in Argentina and educated in Canada, he currently works as a writer and photographer in France. Along with his day-to-day -day duties as a journalist, he is also working on a personal portrait project inspired by the Argentine writer Julio Cortazar. I began our conversation by asking him whether the stories told by his family about living through the brutal dictatorship in Argentina during the 70s helped to spark his interest in stories and journalism. I don't know if um, it's completely related to journalism, but my parents did talk a bit about the dictatorship. Um, obviously, they were not, um, they didn't talk a lot um, of all, all the details, but they talk about their ex personal experience. And I have many memories. I had one that I still remember because not far away from where I live with my parents, well, where I used to live with my parents, there is, there was a torture center during the dictatorship, a big one, one of the biggest ones. We had to go through it um, already in democracy time. I mean, there was, it was no longer a torture center, but we had to pass by it to get to my aunt's place. And my mother, and my mother mostly kept saying, look, in this place, if you used to stop your car, they would shoot at you because they were scared that there, I mean, the car was uh, loaded with bombs. There was a car bomb. I didn't mind if you were um, a mother with kids, the military would just shoot at you. So it was a long ride to pass by it. And you could still see when I was a kid, the soldiers doing guard behind a sort of a bunker. So obviously they were not gonna shoot at you during democracy time. But when I was a kid, I had this idea that you couldn't stop your car in that area because they would kill you. And my mother was a bit, uh, she was not overreacting, but in just by telling me the story, she passed me that sort of fear and not mystical fears because it made no sense. Why would they shoot at us? Because we're not going to do anything to them. So I got like little things, little stories like that, that marked me from the dictatorship. You're, you know, you're a journalist. So was your interest in storytelling born from the way people told stories in your family? Or did you have just an innate curiosity that you were always sort of asking questions? What, how was that born for you? Uh, good question. I, I was initially interested by storytelling more than journalism. I discovered that journalism had a capacity to tell story much later in my life. Um, it was books that um, took me to um, the, the, I mean curiosity curiosity by 
of storytelling. I don't know if it is innate. I don't think it is. But my parents, you know, they they introduced me to reading, of course, um, be- just before school, because I was curious. I wanted to know how to read. I wanted to decipher those books that were at home. And then I started reading kids' stories, and especially Jules Verne, the French author. And I kept asking every two words to my parents, what does this word mean? What does this action mean? Why does the character say this? So, and they would answer eventually, and, and, and until obviously they get a, a bit annoyed because I would have so many questions. Uh, and my grandfather was named like me, Hugo. Um, he was also not much of a storyteller, but he would tell stories of his childhood. And I loved the way he told anecdotes. So I guess my curiosity to tell stories comes from books and a bit of my family. And as well, obviously, again, films. Uh, eventually, we got cable TV and we got those 24-7 movie channels. And I must admit that I used to watch a hell of a lot of movies when I was a kid. <laughs> and and that's how I got into storytelling and images, I think. I mean, without knowing, of course, I'm, I'm thinking it from, from right now, now looking at the past from my present today. And I realized that, I mean... I just love the way movies told stories. I wanted to become a movie director when I was a kid. That's what I wanted to do because I just thought it was incredible. And I tried to move that way. Eventually, I realized that uh, it was not for me. And I I discovered other ways of telling stories, which, which was through journalism and through photography. Well, you started your career in, in Argentina. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, I started... It's a bit more complex because at the age of 17, I moved by myself to Canada, to Vancouver, well, British Columbia. So I did the last two years of my high school in Canada. And uh, and it was there in uh, in Vancouver Island, to be correct, in, a, in an international school where there was a kid from each country in the world, almost. So it's called United World College. It was in that school that they had a photo club, a photo activity. And, and there was a, the art teacher who basically explained uh, how the photo camera would work and how do you develop film, and that's it. And then you would go out and take photos and develop yourself, you know. And without knowing, that's how I started to be interested in photography and storytelling through images. And obviously, I still was obsessed with movies. And during my high school time in Canada, I founded, a, well, founded, I mean, I continued, sorry, uh, a film group, you know, where you just watch movies and then discuss about it and blah, blah. And uh, when I moved to university in Vancouver, there's where I did two, I did a double BA on international relations and film production, because I wanted to see if you could tell stories, real stories, um, documentary stories, politically related mostly, using, you know, the knowledge of international relations, economics, politics, social issues, and the film production aspect. Um, so I started like that mostly in, in Canada. In Argentina, it was a bit more, I was still younger, so I was trying to discover all the ways that you could tell a story, but um, it matured in Canada. And uh, I started doing a bit of film, like, a, you know, an intern and helping here and there. And I realized it was not for me and difficult hours and a complete different world than when I imagined. So when I left Canada at the age, if I'm correct, at the age of 25 or 26, on the way to South America, a professor of mine, a Canadian professor, 
uh, Maxwell Cameron, he said, he was a political professor, he said, I'm going to be in Peru for the elections. If you're going down to South America, why don't you stop over and you help me out? I'm doing a blog, uh, uh, an online media, and maybe you can do some, some research for us. So I, I did that. I spent a month in Peru following the presidential candidate who is now the president of Peru. And I was taking photos, doing videos and interviews. And it was that experience during that month around Lima and Cusco that I realized, wow, this is cool. And what is this? And I realized this is journalism. You know, I was besides other Peruvian journalists. And I thought, man, they get to tell story. They get to film. They get to... Uh, they get to meet interesting people. You know, I was walking around, moving around with this candidate, going through nice, fancy neighborhood to uh, shanty towns and getting to see all the faces of, well, all the faces, many faces of Lima, of the, Peru. And after that month, when I finally got to Argentina and I knew the elections were coming up as well, I said, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to create a media, an online media to follow the electoral process and do journalism. And that's how I got into it. And, and I never, and I never got off. I love it. How did that experience sort of change your perspective? Because here you were, you, you, you were from um, South America and then you had this time to study international studies. So you had uh, uh, an education, but suddenly when you're, put in this circumstance in the midst of this political election and seeing all these different people and these different societies, these different levels of class, what, how did that shake up the way that you saw the world, the way that you saw politics, the way that you saw people? How was that revelatory for you? I mean, you describe what it was like for you in terms of discovering journalism, but in terms of your view of the world, how did that change? Well, that's a very good question because it did change a lot. Um, because my education, my last education, um, the university one and the last year of high school were in Canada, I had a complete different approach to um, to society. Of course, I mean, I was not aware of this. Uh, things, really, they work in Canada. I mean, it's not Canada, in North America in general, you know, when, the, uh, when they pass a law, the law is enforced. And when a company is started, it doesn't mean that the company will work, but at least um, there you, you get to understand why things don't work because things are stable. So in a way, I, I made myself a picture of the world like, uh, well, like what I saw in Canada. You know, if the law is the law, this is what happens and things are relatively stable. If you switch on the light, the, the light interrupter, the light will come up. And when I moved back to South America and I passed through Peru and then Argentina, I realized that things were not like that everywhere, even though I came from there, you know, and, and you have this idealistic thing. Okay. If you get to, if you imply, if you, um, create a law or set up a law, then this thing will happen because then people will understand that it's important, blah, blah, blah. And no, it's not as easy. I mean, there's so many realities, cultural frontiers, um, economic scarcity, uh, I mean, the lack of funding, uh, you cannot do the same thing in, in Peru that you can do in, in, in Canada. And being myself subject to this new environment, you know, being me in Argentina trying to look for work, seeing how inflation is high, seeing how 
things, I mean, as, are relatively unstable. It's not as bad sometimes as we read in the media, but still, it's kind of hard. Then it did, it did shake me a lot. I mean, I learned a hell of a lot about me and a lot about um, South America and a lot about, you know, different circumstances. Things don't work the same way everywhere. And it's not that easy to come from outside with... Uh, an international economic plan and try to enforce it in a country, you know, it takes a lot of time and to understand why some things will work and why others won't. So now I have a completely different approach, you know, a more local based approach and less theory based, you know, not, not every single law will be respected. And there is a reason why not. And sometimes it's not as bad, you know, it's not that we are facing a chaotic country. It's just a different way to see how, the society will rule itself sometimes. Sometimes, of course, it's not as, as idealistic. Could you give me an example of a story that you told both with words and with, with pictures in which that, that concept that you've just described was really sort of shaped? Because, as you said, you were very theoretical at first, but then there are sort of the practical issues of, of, of being able to tell the story for a certain community revolving around a certain issue. Was there a certain story where you kind of felt like you discovered how to more effectively tell a story to communicate that to your audience? Good question. I think, yeah. When I was, uh, I was in Argentina developing my um, online media about elections and politics. Uh, a lot of it was, well, I was writing part in Spanish, part in English at the beginning. So a part of my audience was foreign based. And they had a specific questions about, um, for example, the crisis of 2001, when Argentina went through a, a terrible financial crisis back then. And uh, there were, at one period, there were f five different presidents in less than, I think, a month or something like that. And... Uh, and the images that were that were broadcasted on TV were obviously, you know, protest, cars burned, dead people, poor people, you know, hunger. So it looked like, a, well, it looked like what it was, a mess. But at the same time, um, the, the people were saying, oh, there's a cow. There was this image of five presidents in less than a month. And what I realized when I was trying to explain that and writing in my website, it's like, yes, it's true, there were five presidents. But if you look on the positive aspect, the one president succeeded each other in the normal constitutional law, in the, in the, in the constitutional procedure that was decided by a Congress that was elected by the people. So it was not good, but it's not as bad. That same problem 20 years before or 30 years before in Argentina or anywhere else in Latin America would have ended in a coup d'etat that is absolutely illegal, as we know. So when people were looking only at the massive cows, they said, look, at the end of the day, we managed to go through the problem respecting the law that we voted. You know, if a president resigns, there's a procedure to follow and we followed it. And each president, each subsequent president followed that procedure. There was no interruption of the constitutional law. So that was one thing I that uh, that changed uh, how I saw things, you know, instead of like looking only at the theory, oh, there were so many head of states changing. Well, look, look at the law, look at the experience. 
we went through a terrible crisis and still, despite all the mess, we managed not to um, not to interrupt the constitutional order, which was what we used to do with militaries jumping in and martial law being stated, you know, it's, it's not so bad. When when you use when you began using the camera, what what consider what considerations did you need to make in order to be able to tell uh, a, a story? Because uh, that's a completely different language uh, than than using words. What were some of the things that you discovered early on in terms of being able to effectively convey a story using using images and not depending on words so much? With words, and especially when you come from an academic background. Um, I mean, academic in the sense that I did international studies and you get taught how to analyze things more than write about it. Uh, you want to say a lot. And with photography, I realized that you could say things, you could say a lot of things just by focusing on one aspect. So in a, in a way, image making, not only photography, but image making taught me how to summarize things, how to manage to uh, just show something and try to avoid telling the entire story. And it, it could be said that, you know, depth of feel is that thing. You, you just make, you focus on one subject and then you might choose a shallow depth of feel to put everything else in, uh, everything else out of focus. And in one way you're guiding the audience to a main point. So that's what image taught me that I was not doing very good when I was writing my first articles. You know, I was trying to say a lot. It's like I was trying to put everything in one photo. Mm. By, by taking photos, I learned, okay, look, it's not that you're hiding information from people. It's only that you're telling one story at a time. Today you say this, tomorrow you'll write another article that will help to understand the previous one. But just focus, focus and don't, don't go around everywhere. Don't, don't try to tell everything at once. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. No, no, that, that helps. So tell me about the transition from that to, to moving uh, to France and doing work there. What, what prompted you to, to leave? I was doing a bit of journalism in Argentina with my website and, in, and for other media. I was as assisting foreign correspondents using my English skills, explaining the local situation. But eventually I wanted to, um, I thought I needed journalism training. And the reason why I came to do it in France was mostly, not exclusively, but mostly because of love. You know, I guess it was one of the main reasons why a lot of people move around the world or stay once they moved is because you find a loved one. So I was with a French lady and we moved to France five years ago now. And I decided to do a, 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 a journalism school here. Two reasons. First, because I wanted to make, I wanted to learn better French. And also because school, beyond obviously teaching you the basic stuff that you need to know, it puts you in connection with other people as well, other students and professors and the local industry. So it was a tough thing, very tough at the beginning, because my French was barely, uh, well, it was just at the level to get into the university. So at the beginning, <laughs> during my first courses, I think I was understanding uh, about two thirds or uh, of the classes, maybe maybe a bit more, and I was obviously having a hard time sometimes expressing what I wanted to say. But um, after the two years in the school, I managed to learn very good French, so I managed to to get some good connections. But it was a tough transition, but I learned a lot in France. I mean, not only about journalism, but about the culture, how different it is, especially from from Canada, from North America. 
So what were some of the things that you learned that were different, in, not, not just in terms of the culture, but in terms of how a story is told? Were there really any differences, or, or is it the principles behind journalism are fairly universal? No, some some stuff is basic. I mean, journalism is the same. I, well, I don't know, but it's, it's quite the same in Argentina, Canada, and France. But then there's different ways of telling the story here. Um, they, what I with photography, what I what I I was being told all the time is like just you know stay, try to reduce again the angle of focus, choose an angle and stick with, with it and move us through it until the end of it. You know, don't try to tell so much. So they, they have a bit more of a, I don't know if you call it scientific. No, scientific is not a good word, but it's a much more narrow, but not in a negative sense. You know, they don't want you to move around as much and just stick with one story and one angle through the story with the images you show. That's one of the main things. And one other thing, I, they, they tend to be here much less confrontational than what I see in the US and especially what I see in England. So the stories are told, but they don't tend to, um, they don't tend to attack as much the interviewed, for example, or, or some areas of this, or some stories that could be touchy, could be a difficult subject. I mean, they, they are not censored at all, but you know, there's discussed. Do we need to tell the story? How important is this story? Not will this story hurt somebody unnecessarily? So, and that thing I kind of like of France. You know, every time something gets published, it's, there's not that many tabloids. For example, that's what I'm trying to say. There's okay, not that many paparazzis. I mean, of course there are, but there are. But I mean, when they ask you for a photo or when they ask you for a story. It won't make it in like in England, you know, to those strange tablets that you see around announcing horrible stories or getting into people's private life. And France tends to be quite respectful of privacy, photo-wise and story-wise. This has been breached in the past, of course, but much less than what happened in other countries. So I feel way comfortable telling stories here because I know that even if we got a good story and I and and we don't get the authorization from the person, you know, to use their image or, or, or if it is a minor, I know my editors will respect that and I will respect that so I can freely and make ethical decisions. So, so tell me about that. I mean, because here in the United States, if, uh, if a photojournalist is, is out in a public street and there's a news event that's happening and uh, they make their photographs, they have complete license to be able to use those images, even if the, the, the person is a, is a minor. What, what, what are the specific restrictions that you face there as a journalist in, in France? Well, that's actually, yeah, there are quite many. Um, I recently teaching some uh, future journalists here in France, and we talk about it. And as a rule, you don't take photos of minors. That's that's it. Even if it is in the in a demonstration, I mean, you could use that photo if it is really important to tell the story. But I mean, you wouldn't be able to keep using that photo maybe a year afterwards. You know, then then uh, they they call it something like there's no no longer relative or no longer important to the information. It was when you published it a year ago, but now you cannot use it again. So minors. I w we wouldn't take photos of. I mean, for my projects, we had some people under 18 who were interested in participating, and I was a bit, you know, uh, cautious about it. I said, oh, no, we got to get your parents' authorization. We got to sign a, a release form that is quite restrictive. So, 
you know, normally we don't do that. And, and again, you know, you're not allowed to, you can't do street photography, no problem, but then you cannot, you wouldn't be able to easily publish it unless of course it's related to the story that the best way to be safe is to get everybody to sign a release form. Of course, this would be impossible just if you take a photo in Champs-Élysées in the middle of Paris. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're focusing, if you're zooming into somebody and you're obviously portraying this person in the middle of Champs-Élysées, uh, then, and if you're pretending to use that as in, in, in a story or in a poster, you should probably get the authorization unless that person is directly related to the story. If it's just a person walking on the street that you po- posted on your blog, you should be careful. I mean, especially if you're a famous journalist, if it's just me, I mean, you, you wouldn't mind maybe until the person finds it. I had people found photos I took of them in previous interview and they asked me if I could remove them because they were no longer um, related to the political party they, they were supporting in that photo. And because the story was not as important, it was just my Flickr account. I didn't mind. I took that person out. But um, again, you know, you, it's not as easy as in the U.S., Wow. When you were working for publications, did you, have you ever had the occasion where you felt like you needed to fight for the use of the picture because you were getting some pushback for those reasons that you've just described? Or, or? No, 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 actually no. But I did have um, people when I was using, for, when I took some photos who they asked me, you know, okay, you can use the photos for this purpose, but then if the photo... Um, goes into another website I want to know before it gets published there and of course I mean it's impossible once you publish a photo online it's impossible to know if another website will take it up so in those cases if the person really wants you to to use limited to have a limited use of their image you know just better not to use that photo I mean if you can if you can use another one it's perfect but if if you need that one then you do need to convince them I just had one person who, who was a lawyer and and gave me a specific limited use of his image. And, you know, in the end, I barely use it because I cannot really control. Once you post it online, it's impossible to know where that thing is going to go. So I don't want to be responsible for it. And it was not that important. So I didn't mind. Do you feel that such restrictions really hamper, not just yours, but most photojournalists in France in terms of the, their ability to be able to tell stories, especially stories that of, of people or circumstances that people might not readily want to have exposed in a in, in a newspaper or, or a magazine, uh, the United States is is famous for um, for many stories that were very socially conscious uh, that brought to that brought to people's attention things like child labor or or mistreatment of people in mental institutions. Does, does such restrictions sort of hamper a journalist's ability to be able to tell those stories visually, or uh, or no? And that's a that's a brilliant question because it's you're asking um, one of the many debates photographers and journalists have here. But first, because because I'm not French, and I've been here for five years. You know, even though I live here, I, I still have this foreigner complex to say in a way that you know I always feel awkward giving opinions about the the nation that is hosting me. Um, obviously, it's a, it's. It's not important, but, you know, you still, you have this feeling that you're not a local. So, but I will give you my opinion. I mean, I don't feel for what I do, it doesn't hamper me, but I know other photojournalists who complain about it. And, and there has been uh, even articles written about the situation of how a photo of a person who has been 
the photograph, I don't know, it was like a specific case of a person, if I remember correctly, he was photographed 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when he used to belong to extreme right wing party. And it was a famous photograph. And now that person, I mean, he's no longer related to that party and asked to for the photographer to stop using that image. And the judge agreed and gave this person, you know, the right not to, uh, but uh, not to use the photo anymore. So some photojournalists and some publications said, you know, this has been this is censorship. You know, we cannot we cannot work like this because if we take a photo today and we're trying to tell a story today, I mean, even though if that person's no longer related to it in 30 years, I mean, the story did exist and we did have that issue. So. Yes, it does hamper some people for what I do know, because I tell mostly social stories and, and um, I mean, I don't, I, I have a rule of not, not photographing minors unless if I really need to, for the moment I didn't have to do it. So, so it doesn't, it doesn't make it easy, but you get used to it. You get used to the limitation and you get used to know, you know, what things you need to respect and how to tell a story while respecting those ethicals or those ethicals, those rules, not necessarily ethical. Mm. Well, when I met you in uh, in Paris this summer, you told me about a photo a project that you're working on, the unexpected photo essay on Cortassa, his readers in Paris. Can you tell us uh, about this 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 series that you're working on and what inspired it? Of course, yeah. Um, I I start doing the unexpected photo essay on Cortassa. A year ago now, and how did I get inspired? I mean, it, it was obviously the uh, journalistic instinct, you know, you always, you know what's gonna be important next year and what is important to you. So I knew it was the 100th anniversary of the uh, birth of an Argentine writer called Julio Cortázar, who spent most of his life in Paris. And, uh, and, and I liked him as a writer, so I wanted to do something, you know, and and the first thing, you know, that I came to my mind was what we usually do, an article, interviews, portraits of him, portraits of the uh, people that knew him, uh, and that's it. But because it was a personal idea, I said, well, why don't I do something unexpected? You know, why don't, why don't I do something new, a new angle, something that doesn't look like what we do every single year for almost every single writer or musician, you know? Basically, the, the question I said okay, that I posed myself was, how do you tell an unexpected story about a narrator, a storyteller like Cortázar, which is a storyteller of unexpected stories? And I was thinking, how could you do this? And, and if you could get people involved. And the idea was born out of participation. I wanted people to participate for two reasons. First, because many of the books that Cortázar wrote were quite participative. And second, because when you're a freelance photographer and, and journalist, you, you, you spend a lot of time alone. And eventually that, that, I mean, doesn't hamper you, but you realize that you, you know, you, you talk to yourself, you know, and you're not too sure if you're going the right direction or the wrong direction and you need a team or you need to discuss things. So by making the project participative project, I was thinking, okay, maybe then I could talk to the people that will work with me on it, you know, the people I will portray maybe. So the concept is simple. I asked people, readers of Cortázar who lived in Paris or were visiting Paris to choose uh, a passage, a fragment of one of his books called Hopscotch, 
that takes place in Paris mostly, that and the passage should mention a specific place in the city, you know, maybe Boulevard Saint-Germain or the Pont des Arts. And once they chose that passage, we would go to the place they it's mentioned. I would take a portrait of them showing the place around them. And then they would have to explain me briefly why did they chose why did they choose this place or this passage? The idea was to show with images and with words who are today's readers of Cortázar and how does the city look today different from the time that he wrote the book 50 years ago. My audience, I mean, I had in mind the Argentine audience. I wonder, okay, I need to show the Argentines who know Cortázar but maybe don't know the city. You know, how does this the places that he talked about look like and who are the people that you know, reading it today, you know, even though there's been a long time since he wrote the book and a long time since, since, his, uh, since his birth, he still influences people. And I only wanted to take nine photos to be published in a, in a hopscotch kind of uh, design. But the, um, the project worked so well that then the people were, keep sending in emails. Oh, I heard that you're doing this. I'd like to participate. I mean, and that book changed my life or that book was really important for me. And what it started being some minor project that should take me, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks with nine photos, ended up being a year-long project. And I photograph now, I think, over over 87 people, and I'm reaching soon to 100. So it was a great experience. What What is it about Cortázar's writing that resonates not just with you, but with so many, so many Argentinians? Well, his writing... Um, he was, he was a bit of a, I don't like to use the word revolutionary, but he did, he was, uh, he was unexpected. He used the language in an unexpected ways. He gave himself permissions to use words in a different way. And he gave himself permission to uh, tell stories in, th in ways that you didn't know, you didn't expect to. For example, the Hopscotch book, you can read it from beginning to end, which is like you read any other book. But he also provides you at the very beginning a complete different uh, order of, of the chapter. So you have a second reading of the book. He tells you two stories with the same book. So the book and the language itself becomes an object that you can play with. And people back in the 60s, 70s, and obviously in the 80s, they like that way of like uh, breaking with the rules of the language and breaking with the rules of the, of the book, you know. It's not as straightforward as they were used to it. And, and also the writing, he's very... Uh, passionate, very romantic, and he tells fantastic stories, you not know, unbelievable things. And so it influenced especially people who were in their teenage and maybe mid-30s, who, who were more of a kind of a dreamy kind of people. And a lot of them got to, knew, got to know Paris, not only Argentinians, all, a lot of Spanish speakers got to know um, Paris thanks to his books, you know, a very idealistic, romantic Paris, you know, with bohemians and jazz music and wine and people wandering on the streets, seeing the beauty of the building. Uh, and a lot of the people who came to Paris, then they came with this idea and they all wanted to, and that's what they told me when they were, I was photographing them. They all wanted to see those places that he mentioned to see if they could find the same magic he told in his stories. And obviously the ones who participated did find the magic. If not, they wouldn't have participated. But um, I mean, still today, some people who are like, you know, 75 years old, they said, oh, that book, you know, allowed me to get to know the city and allow me to get to know myself and to dream. 
how did how did the fact that you had that in common with the people who you were photographing this love for for this man's work for this man's writing help you in terms of making making oh. making the photographs oh yeah okay well i mean it was it helped me because i could understand what they were saying and it was easier to see uh, where they were coming from it was easier to see if they were dreaming the same things i was dreaming and uh, and in some cases, at least, even if they had nothing to do with what I thought of the of the book or the f- passage, I was open and I understood what they meant by um, you know by by the Paris they thought they were going to see and by how that book or that writer changed their way of the, how they relate to other people. So it may, it got us closer, you know. It, that's that's the main thing, and uh, also it allowed me to to suggest different poses for the photo, you know, in some cases, not just a simple portrait, stand over there, you know, look at me, look over there, you know, maybe lie down on the floor, put your hair in this way towards the river. It was, I'm thinking a specific photo of a, of a woman who chose a passage in which the character talks about suicide and talks about the river, the Seine River. So instead of just doing the photo, normal, posing for I asked her just lie down the closest possible to the river and let your hair she had really long curly beautiful hair let it drop almost in the river you know like you're touching it and and because we talked before you know I almost I always have a coffee with people before discuss I explain the project she had trust in me and she knew that you know we, we both share the same taste for the author and that allowed us to have a little bit of, um, how do you call it, a complicity, you know, like we were a bit, um, we knew where we were up to, you know, like two kids playing with, and she was ready to like, you know, lie down, even though she was, it was cold, the, the floor in Paris are not exactly clean. I mean, you probably you got to see that when you were here and people were open to any suggestions. They would just, they were happy to play. And that's what the main thing that I liked, you know, people, no matter their age, they were just playing with photo, with a text, and they were ready to try things. Well, what was some of the biggest surprises that you experienced as a result from moving from just eight images to over for 80 in terms of what you were creating with your photographs? Because I can't help but feel that 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 they were, there were some things that you just hadn't, could not have anticipated that resulted from you, you know, making so many portraits based on this series. That was one of the main reasons why I did the project. You know, I was, let me, let me tell you a bit about the story of it, because I was, as a journalist, you tend to work on, on news most of the time, not exclusively, most on news. So things goes really fast. You got to take the photo. If you go to a football match, a soccer match, you got to take the photo and send it right away. If you need to write a story, you write it and it goes, goes to print or to whatever it has to go. And, and you don't get to spend time. And with this project, I was saying, okay, let's for once try to do something because it's a personal thing. Let's try to do something that lasts for a year, you know, and put myself in a situation in uh, w- which I, I have the time to explore myself if I'm, if I'm able, you know, to deal with different people and, and different personalities. And that's what I discovered with doing so many portraits. At one point, you know, you you find many different persons, and I wanted to see if I could manage to take portraits of um, people from different backgrounds. I, I photographed politicians, sportsmen, 
uh, dancers, basically people who are used to being photographed, but also like uh, everyday people who even didn't like to be photographed. And they still said, but because I like the writer and because I like the idea, I will participate. But let me warn you, I don't like to be photographed. I don't like my portrait to be taken. And, uh, and that was the challenge. And I must admit, and in some cases I managed to, and in some others, it's just very difficult. You know, you talk, you try to relax the person, you, you have a coffee, and you spend way more time than you, you should trying to get the person at ease. And sometimes you don't get it. I mean, I specifically think of one person, you know, two hours, you know, talking and discussing, just chatting about life. And in the meantime, try to take a photo of the person. And I mean, in the end, the photo worked. But it was a hell of a lot of work just <laughs> to get that person to relax. And I realized, okay, Ugo, you're not as good yet with different personalities. And that's why I, one of the main reasons why I do it. And another thing is you realize that eventually, I mean, if you don't pay attention, if you don't work hard, you might end up always taking the same portrait. Uh, that Paris is a beautiful city, rich in architecture, rich in gardens, but, um, if you don't pay attention, if you don't walk the place before, if you don't work hard, you might be repeating the same angle. And I was amazed at that, you know, how, how even in a beautiful place you manage to, um, if, if, again, if you are not disciplined to repeat yourself and, and always so looking for a different photo every single time was one of the main challenges. I have to do one this week and the person chose Another passage that mentions uh, a, a street, a short street. Streets in Paris are quite small. And I already photographed that street for another person that chose another passage. And, and I remember that it was a tough place, you know, because it was, it was only, what, 300 meters long, very short, loads of people, loads of tourists, and not, not so different. So I'm, it's one of the challenges this week is how am I going to photograph this person in the same street obviously in a different area because the passage is not the same and still try to show something different from what I took uh, three months ago. So, so yeah, that's, that's one of the main challenges of this project. What are you hoping to do with it? Because I know you mentioned that uh, a book is part of the, uh, the, the final concept, but can you tell us more about that? Yeah. The, um, the, the, the photo essay ended up in three different formats. One is online that where all the photos can be seen, uh, published also in hopscotch form. The second is an, an exhibition, a normal one. I mean, it's getting exhibited quite a bit in Paris. Uh, soon it will go to uh, the university uh, here in Paris. And then next year I will take it to New York. Um, but um, the third format was a book, but I didn't want to do as a, a traditional book, you know, you just flip around the photos because Cortázar didn't do himself traditional books. So uh, the, the concept that I came up with is, uh, I call it the unexpected photo book, the same as the, uh, <laughs> the, same as the project. But um, it's a, a box, a box that is a form, um, form, it looks like a book. It's a book-shaped box. Once you, when you open it, inside I put seven envelopes, colored envelopes, a little stone, and, and I forgot how you call it, the ones you use for the blackboard, to write in the blackboard. How do you call it? Oh, the that? chalk. A chalk, thank you. And a chalk. And what you're supposed to do, there's a little 
instruction manual explains that this is a game and it tells you you should put the envelopes in a hopscotch format. Then you get the, the little stone that I found somewhere in the streets in Paris and you throw it. And once, like if you're playing hopscotch, once it follows, it falls on, uh, on an envelope, you pick up that envelope, you open it, and inside you will find a postcard. The postcard is one of the photos of the uh, essay, and on the other side you have the passage the person chose and the, the explanation why they chose that passage. And every single envelope hides a different story, and you can only discover them if you play with the stone. Of course, it's just a concept. I don't think every single reader will play hopscotch. But the idea is that they need to interact with the images to discover every personal story. And the chalk is the last rule of the game. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a joke in a way. It's a, I say, get the chalk, go outside, and you yourself play hopscotch. You know, I don't want people just to uh, look at the images. I want them to play with it and then play around themselves hopscotching in the streets. Every single box, I am, I'm only making a hundred of them and every single box is different from the other one. Not, not, there's not a single one that has the same images. So every person who buys one of these books or these boxes gets a specific set of stories. You know, the one who will see Erica's stories will not see Julio's stories or will not see a uh, Jeremy's story. So every one of our, my future readers will also be in one way participating in a unique way of the uh, photo essay. I don't know if that was clear enough. Oh, no. And it's fascinating. I think it's a, just a, a wonderful idea and it really elevates, you know, what people can think of when they think about how can they use uh, photographs. I think it's, I think it's awesome. I look forward to, to, to seeing it. Well, you're going to receive one of these books soon. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend uh, a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Okay. I mean, this, this is a question I've been preparing for. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was one of my favorites that that, that, that I hear now all your interviews. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be fair. I'm gonna give you one, but then I'm gonna be unfair and I'm gonna add another one. So I'm gonna give you one that is quite famous, um, but at least famous in Argentina. But maybe some of your uh, some of your audience don't know him. It's called Marcos Lopez. Um, it's an Argentine-based photographer who does a lot of kitsch photography, not related to journalism, but I do like his way of using color and using popular culture and tell stories with it in almost, in, in um, not a, how do you say like, not in a provocative way, but in an unusual way as well. So, I mean, as you can, as you can see, I tend to like what is unexpected and unusual. I like to see when people push you to different perspectives. So he's one of them. And then um, an upcoming one, one that is already quite known and will probably be more famous in the future. It's a woman, a German woman based in London, if I'm correct, or in England at least. Her name is Julia Fullerton Batten. And she, uh, she has done a good couple of good series that I really enjoy. One of them is called Anadorn about um, people's bodies, especially bodies do, that do not follow um, our current, to put it in a way, not our current 
aesthetic uh, rules, you know, not they don't have the perfect bodies that we see in normally magazines. And she took portraits of these people and they were just amazing, you know. First, how did she manage to convince these people and and to to pose in these beautiful settings with this beautiful lighting and color? So check Marcos Lopez and check Julia Fullerton Batten. Well, thank you for those. I, I've not heard of them, but I, I look forward to discovering them. So uh, where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? Well, I'm very much of a, of a geek. I like a... My, I like to be present online because that's how I get most of my clients. So they can either go to my website, which is uh, www.hugopassarello. That's H-U-G-O-P-A-S-A-R-E-L-L-O.com. Or just Google me and they will find my Facebook where I post a lot of my photos or my Twitter feed. Well, Hugo, thank you very much. I was very pleased to have a chance to meet you while I was in Paris, and even more so to have a chance to talk to you and learn more about your, your story. So thanks for making the time for me. No, thanks to you. It was also a pleasure to meet you here, and I'm hoping to hear more of your excellent interviews. Thanks a lot for your work. It's really important what you do. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners like you. To help support the work we do at TCF, please take the time to make a donation via PayPal for $10, $20, $50, or more. Your contributions have helped to make the show what it is. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. Dot com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.